0: Welcome to the Medical Muse podcast. Discover the humanistic aspects of physicians and scientists as they describe their career paths and any advice they have for current medical students. Each episode, we interview a new guest and discuss the future of the field. This is the Medical Muse.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today, we are pleased to have Dr. Dean Wallace with us. Dr. Wallace currently serves as the Dean of the Karan C. Patel College of Osteopathic Medicine. She is also an active researcher, scholar, and has been recognized numerous times for her mentorship and teaching excellence. Dean Wallace is board certified in family medicine, neuromusculoskeletal medicine, sports medicine, and medical acupuncture. Thank you, Dr. Wallace for joining us today and we're very excited to have you on the show, welcome.
0: Thank you very much, Daniel, glad to be here. Thank you, Raj.
1: So um, tell us a little bit about yourself, Dr. Wallace, where are you originally from?
0: Well, I have a interesting background. Uh, My dad was born in very rural Mississippi. My mom was uh, of an immigrant family from Italy. And my dad met my mom when he was in the service. So we lived in New Jersey, which is where my mother's family settled. But True to my roots, after I finished in Jersey, I went to college back in Mississippi. And then after going to college in Mississippi, I went to medical school in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, After medical school, I felt a need to give back to that community. So I went into private practice there in the Kansas City area for about five years, and then became one of the faculty members at my alma mater, which at that time was uh, the University of Health Sciences. The name has changed since that time. And then I decided I was going to change uh, due to some personal issues, and I moved to Maryland. Uh, While I was in Maryland, the previous dean in Kansas City, Tony Silvani, had come down to the Florida school, and he had been trying to get me to come to Florida and trying to get me to come to Florida, and I really am not real fond of South Florida, and I was living in Maryland at that time, and so he he said, what's it going to do to get you to come down here. And I said, listen, if I'm coming down there, I'm only going to work four days a week and you're going to pay for my airfare every week because I'm not moving there. And so he said, okay. So for my first six years of working here at Nova Southeastern, I actually lived in Maryland and I commuted every week from Maryland. So I flew out every Monday morning and I flew back every Thursday night, which sounds a lot. But at the end of the week, I actually traveled less than some of my colleagues who were living in Miami after they got done with their trek down to Miami. Uh, Shortly thereafter, life changed, family changed, and I've been in South Florida now for 21 years. So been all over the uh, East Coast and the middle of the country.
1: Wow. Um, So what about what timeline was that when you made your way like when you had the Maryland commuting to Florida job?
0: Uh, I started here in 2000, and so that was 2000 to 2006.
1: Okay. Was the campus in the same place
0: then? Campus was in the same place. Um, Everything was pretty much the same. Obviously, the hospital wasn't built at that time. The research building wasn't built at that time, but the remainder of the campus was pretty much the same.
1: Okay. Interesting. Um, So after you graduated medical school, you hung around the Kansas City, Missouri area?
0: I did. I had a private practice in the southern part of uh, kansas city and kansas city at that time the southern part was relatively rural so it was a great family medicine practice i delivered two to three babies every week and i took care of the pediatric patients all the way through the geriatric patients i also uh, developed a rape crisis unit so i took care of that particular practice as part of my practice, I worked emergency room three evenings a week when I first got started at Lakeside Hospital, where I did my postgrad studies. And um, then after that, the city began to expand a little bit, so I ended up being somewhat in the middle of the city after the southern expansion. But uh, Kansas City was a nice place to be. It's uh, it was big enough to have great restaurants and great art and small enough that it still felt country. And it was pretty accessible anywhere that you wanted to travel. It was always nice to get back to there. And it was always nice to leave there to go on vacation.
1: Yeah, my, my dad uh, spent his first 35 years in Kansas City. So I've, I've visited really? four or five times wow. younger, but- it's Was a, your dad a physician? No, he um, he sold window coverings. He had a couple careers, but that was his ultimate um, business that he started, so.
0: Well, he probably, you know, he was probably there when I was there because I was back there about 40 years ago, 44 years ago, I started med school and I stayed there for about 12 years. So we probably crossed paths somewhere. I'm sure at some of the good restaurants, we crossed paths.
1: Yep, exactly. Um, So you mentioned that you, well, I guess, talk, talk to us about how you got back into academia once you were finished with school. You said, I think you said. Well,
0: I'll tell you, this is a, there's a saying that every osteopath has a story and I too have one. So when I was in private practice, I, I really enjoyed my private practice. I had no intention of leaving my private practice, but I was always very skilled at manipulative medicine. At that time I was in family medicine and I had a couple of masseuses who worked for me in my office and they would do the soft tissue preparing the patients and I would do out of four patients an hour, I probably did one manipulation an hour. And I really enjoyed it, but I was very good at it and I knew it well. And I was known in the city for that because as you know, there aren't quite as many practitioners of manipulative medicine as we osteopaths should have. So um, when the individual who who had taught me manipulative medicine was thinking of retiring they continued to ask me from the school to come back to the school. And I continued to tell them no, that I really wasn't interested in going back to the school because I enjoyed my private practice. At that time, as I told you earlier, Dan, I was taking care of the rape crisis patients, but I started my private practice in 1981. And so what happened was that at that time that was pre-HIV and pre-AIDS. And I had probably I don't know, I had a good number of gay men who were in my practice and um, they began to get sick prior to us really knowing what HIV was or knowing what AIDS was. And being a new doctor, you always think that you're doing something wrong and that you're killing patients. And so you go through this real process of examining yourself and really uh, questioning yourself and checking with colleagues, am I doing anything wrong? And it was not until several years later that we found out about the virus. And so during that time, what happened is that I had a good number of patients die from HIV. And at that time it was a death sentence and many of them died from the virus. Many of them died from the subsequent anemia that was associated with the virus early on. Uh, concomitant to that time, the malpractice for OBGYN was beginning to raise, And so general practitioners were having to pay more and more in order to do OB. And while I was doing OB, I did not mind so much doing the rape cases and the HIV cases because because I had a balance in my life. For every death there was a birth and I understand the cycle of life and I felt like I was good at helping people in the dying process, but I really liked the being born process. And so what happened was that it was becoming almost prohibitive to pay for the malpractice for obstetrics. And so what brought me back to the medical school was actually not manipulative medicine, but as they continued to harass me to come back to school and eventually my instructor did pass away, I finally went back because I said to them, look, I'll bring my private practice with me, but you're going to have to pay my malpractice for OBGYN. And they agreed. So it was a way for me to keep my OBGYM practice as well as keeping my family medicine practice. And I went back to the school as the chair of the OPP department. And shortly thereafter, what occurred was that um, we found out that the president of the university had stolen a bunch of money, and so the school was in financial problems. And so the only two people you can't get rid of who are clinical faculty in an osteopathic medical school are the dean and the chair of OPP. So subsequently, they let a lot of other faculty members go, and they hired them as adjuncts, but I still had my full-time job because I was the chair of OPP. Um, As this went on, the AOA had come down and said, hey, where are all your clinical faculty members? And at this time, I was about 10 years out of uh, my private practice. And so they said, hey, where are all your faculty members? And they said, well, we had to let a lot of them go because we're trying to rebuild the financials. And they said, well, you have to have more deans that are DOs than you currently have. And so they turned around and I was the only one left. And so very quickly I became a dean after I went back to the school because I was the only one left. And uh, so my career in academic medicine has been 30 years long, totally out of serendipity. My academic career was totally out of serendipity, and you know, you never know where life's gonna take you. And um, every time I would change, when I was in private practice, I felt, oh, I can't leave private practice because this hurt my patients. When I was there teaching in the chair of the department, I thought, oh, I can't leave the chair of the department because that's gonna hurt the students. And so every level that you go through in your career, you, you question whether it's the right thing. But uh, I had this serendipitous start, and. I found that I was good at um, administration and I, I liked it. So that was the force that drove me back to begin to get my master's degrees. Because as you know, many individuals who go into academia don't have any educational background. And I was one of those individuals. I was a biology major and interestingly, a criminal justice minor. And so I went back and I have subsequently gotten three degrees in education. I'm enrolled in a fourth degree in education right now which is an educational specialist degree and along the way I also ended up getting a master's in criminal justice so um you know life takes you in interesting places and uh you have to just pay attention to the opportunities because uh they may not be exactly what you think they're going to be but it ended up okay in the long run.
1: that's interesting um that kind of answered one of the questions I was going to ask was um how did you get into leadership? Did you seek it out or did it naturally fall into your position? And you kind of answered it a little bit there. But yeah, there... it
0: kind of fell in my lap totally. But um, I was, you know, I was a kid that had leadership potential. Um, I was always the captain of my sports teams. I was always a Girl Scout leader. Um, so I think that there's, a, uh, there's both a nurture and a nature to leadership. And subsequent to that, I've run many leadership programs at the school. Uh, For instance, we require all of our chairmen of all of the departments to participate twice a month in a leadership program, and we've done that for 10 years. And I have asked them all, did they stumble onto this, just like you asked me, or was this something that was in your uh, nature versus your nurture? And almost to a number, they all said that somewhere in their life, they had those characteristics to be a leader, and then the opportunities just presented themselves. So I think I had the characteristics but uh, the opportunity certainly hit me on the head.
1: Uh-huh. When you look to hire someone as in a leadership position, are there any certain qualities that you really kind of are attracted to in that situation or in that stance?
0: Well, I'll tell you, I am very big in team leading. I, I lead in a way that is probably very different than most people are used to. I do not, I do, not do any top-down management. And so I have a leadership team that meets twice a uh, week, and that is the assistant dean of students, the assistant dean of faculty, the associate dean of administration, uh, the associate dean of bachelor's, master's, and doctoral programs, and both of the executive associate deans for the DO program. And we meet together for two hours twice a week, and we talk about everything that we have uh, going on. And we give input together because these are people I know and I have trusted for many long years. Uh, many of them I've known more than 20 years and work with more than 20 years. So you get to know one another. So to answer your question, I often look for people that will bolster the team. And mm-hmm. so I think that group of individuals, when you pull them apart, each of us have strengths and each of us have weaknesses. But when you put them together, I think we're a much more... Um, symbiotic group. And so very often in leadership roles, I look for what the team needs and not for what I need.
1: That's interesting. Um, I kind of, so I've I've read a couple books on leadership. I would not call myself an expert by any means, but I've, I've heard that sometimes a good leader might recognize when they might not be the best job for a certain position. So they might let one of their teammates take that role, even if it's not the role they want. Have you ever noticed yourself in a position like that?
0: Absolutely. You know, sometimes you have to do um, good guy, bad guy. So we do that sometimes, mm-hmm. but I think that every one of the individuals on the team that I have, have great talents. That's my inner circle. I actually have a lot more deans. We have about 16 deans in the college, and uh, some of them are assistant deans, some are associate deans. Um, Dr. Digatano, for instance, is our associate dean now of um, Davy Campus in preclinical education. She is a stickler with details, so Dr. DiGatano is the person that I want to talk to when I want to know every single I has been dotted and every single T has been crossed. Dr. Johnson, for instance, very big personality, very ebullient individual, very kind and very sociable. He's the one that I want to go to when I need to make personal relationships. Dr. Sandhouse, one of the smartest people I know, uh, has worked with me personally for over 21 years. And that's a long time. And you think about it, it's like a marriage. So he knows me very well. And so if I have to react, I'll go and yell in his office for a period of time. And he just kind of placates me and understands that and then kind of gets me back on on the point. So I, uh, Dr. Celestine, very good with the students uh, and I can go on with all of them. But I do think that everybody has their strengths and we do use one another to meet those strengths as we go forward.
2: So in finding the right people and specific people to make your team, how do you know what to look for in certain personalities um, based on your experiences Uh, So you can create the most cohesive um, work environment.
0: You know, first thing Raj is I would tell you that um, I'm a stickler for honesty. And so the first quality that I look for is honesty in an individual. The second quality I look for is somebody that can laugh because I love to laugh and I think you have to have a good sense of humor in life. And it really is one of my strengths in life. the third thing is that you just get a gut sense. I, I'm a kinesthetic person, so I can feel that individual more than even the interview. Uh, if I'm sitting in a room with somebody, I can tell a lot about that person. Um, but I think that the biggest characteristic I look for is do I like working with the person? You know, we spend a lot of time during our days. Uh, working together, and we have to put together a product and trust one another, and I'm old enough that I don't need to work with people that I don't like, so I look that I like the person, and the person fits in with that team. I really don't care if they're a superstar. If that superstar doesn't fit in with the team, then that's going to be problems down the end. They may do well individually, but in a platform such as how I govern, which is a team effort, it really is does the person fit in with the team. Now you guys get to experience each of those deans differently because you see them at different times, but working together, it's a very cohesive group.
1: So those characteristics, do you also look for those in students whenever you're trying to find students to come to KPCom?
0: Well, it's difficult to tell if they're being honest, but I hope that they are. Uh, I do read a lot of their um, essays that they write before we interview them because I do think that that is important, that they really do want to be a DO and that they really do want to serve the underserved. Uh, We used to be a school that was uh, dedicated to primary care, but we have turned out 50% specialists and 50% generalists for a long period of time. I think when I'm looking at the students, I'm always impressed by those that have good academic standing, but I'm not somebody who wants the top person in the class. Because what I have found throughout my years is that the top person in the college class sometimes is not well-rounded. And I think in order to be an osteopathic physician, you have to have people skills and you have to be well-rounded. So I do look for honesty and I look for those that are already following their passion. I look for people that are open-minded. I will tell you by far the number one question I'm asked with the applicants is about the Uh, medical outreach programs and when people start talking about the medical outreach programs you can see their personalities you can see their dedication to um, the underserved communities so i think that i want somebody who is passionate and somebody who's open-minded i'm not real interested in the student that has the 515 mcat who wants to be a neurosurgeon how the heck does that person even know they want to be a neurosurgeon i want a student who comes in and doesn't know what they want to do they think they do but doesn't really know what they want to do and is open-minded to see what they want to do. Because really at the end of, at the end of your career, at the end of this four years before you go into residency, you have to find your passion. And in order to find your passion, you have to experience life. And then very often, it's not what you think your passion is going to be, because passion doesn't come from the cognitive part where you think it's going to be neurosurgery. It comes from, as I think I've told you guys before, when you hit that rotation where you cannot wait to get up and go to work the next day, that's what you should do. And you're never going to know that until you get into your third and fourth year.
2: That makes that's great a great answer. And uh, speaking of passion, um, what went into your decision of becoming a doctor? And uh, when, did, when did that happen?
0: Well, this also is odd, Raj, but I decided I wanted to be a doctor at the age of six. Uh, I always wanted to be a doctor, and no one in my family is a doctor. At that time, no one in my family had graduated college. There were only two weeks of my life I didn't want to be a doctor. The one week I wanted to be a fireman, and the other week I wanted to be a nun. (laughs) So those were the two weeks that I decided I didn't want to be a doctor, but I've always wanted to be a doctor. So for me, I do believe in reincarnation. I do believe that I have a past life mission. And I think this is my mission. This was my calling. Um, Have no idea why, but it's always been that way. So this was my calling.
1: That's amazing. Um, Speaking of um, firefighters, kind of, uh, I understand that you were um, kind of involved in helping after September 11th. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: I, I was, uh, you know, I was um, teaching OPP at that time, and I remember very clearly the Davy campus in the cafeteria. And I remember walking into the cafeteria, and it was one of those times where everybody was around the televisions. As you know, we have the televisions there in the cafeteria, and everybody was just mute standing around the televisions, and the first tower had just come down. And so people were incredulous at looking at that. and. Um, So as I was watching that, and they played it over and over and over, the second tower was hit. Now at that time, my parents were living in New Jersey, and they were only 12 miles from New York City. And my partner was living in Maryland, very close to Camp David, which was thought to be where the other plane was going before it went to Pennsylvania. And so I just said, I have to go help. I can't stay here. I have to make sure my family's okay. And I'm going up to New York City. So I got in my car, I didn't even go home. I had my scrubs on. I think I had 15 bucks in my pocket and my credit cards and I got in my car and I started driving and I drove all night long. Um, I, stopped, I got to Maryland, I assured everyone was safe. I got to New Jersey, I assured everyone was safe. And then the next day I went into New York City with my parents in order to sign up for the team. Uh, they had a very long list of healthcare providers that had signed up by long list about 7,000 people that had signed up. So they said they'd call me if they needed me. And so we walked around the Ground Zero area. Uh, It's hard to believe, but the buildings were still on fire at that time. And you don't think about that, but that structure after it fell down, burned for quite a number of days. And you could see it as you drove up to New Jersey, uh, turnpike, not the turnpike, but uh, the Garden State Parkway, you could see New York was on fire. I mean, you could visualize it as you drove up to the city area. So we walked around, I remember the asbestos was probably three or four inches thick on the cars. Uh, This was probably a day and a half afterwards. All of the posters were put up on the fences of people that were missing, that people were looking for. And um, after that day, we went home to New Jersey. So the next day I thought, I'm not gonna wait for 7,000 people. So I got up again and I went into the city and I was just at the right place at the right time. I get in there about six o'clock in the morning and they were putting together teams. And so they put me in charge of a team that was very close to the ground zero area. There were nine other people on that team. There were uh, nurses from uh, Canada. There were uh, physical therapists. There was a med student and we just started working and uh, we would see any patients that they brought to us. Um, There were a lot of uh, psychiatric things going on at that time, but a lot more burns and a lot more cuts and things of that nature, some respiratory issues. Um, And then they wanted to send us right down to ground zero. And I remember one of the most impressive things in my life was when we were about to get on the bus to go to Ground Zero, they had us write our social security numbers on our arms with indelible markers, because they weren't sure what was gonna happen and they wanted to be able to identify us. So as we got on the bus, another thing that you don't think about is that many buildings in New York City have lots of rats in them. And the rats were all over the place in New York City at that time. And they elected not to send us all the way down to where the fire was, but about a block or two away. And so I worked there that day and I worked there the following day. And then after that, uh, things got more under control. The Jarvis Center opened up, they had healthcare facilities, but this was prior to the time that they even had the Jarvis Center open up for healthcare facilities. So it was a very impressive time. It makes you really uh, think about your life, makes you think about being a physician and what your service is. But I think um, a lot of being a physician is being in the moment. So when you're doing it, you just do what you're trained to do, and that's it. One of the most astounding things to me is that at no time did they ask for my medical license, at no time. Uh, they just gave me this team and off we went. So I think it was the goodwill of people that brought New York City through those first three or four days until they had a more structured response to the um, 9-11 crisis.
1: That's powerful. Um, that you know, I, I don't know much about what to kind of picture in that situation, but were you in like a, like a kind of like a tent hospital or what were you We were
0: right out on the street.
1: Right out on the street?
0: We're right on the street. That's... And I'd been doing medical outreach for a period of time at that time. I had done it all through my career as a student and when I was in Kansas City. So I think I was well-equipped to do that because when you go on medical outreach programs, you're often in a community center or sometimes you're out in the jungle and you just set it up. So I was very equipped in my mindset that this was just like a mission. I'm going to set it up and that's the way it's going to be. But we were right out on the streets.
1: Wow. Thank you for, for sharing that with us. We, we definitely appreciate that.
0: It was an oh, interesting experience.
1: It was, or it sounds like it is. It's a, you know, it's a big part of our, our country's history now. It absolutely is. So now I'm going to kind of trans transform to or transfer to another another topic um, there's a lot of moving parts as a dean of a medical school especially during a pandemic like this with covid there's a lot of uncertainty and not really knowing what needs to be done um, how do you manage all of those moving parts now and in the past and keep it kind of all together and running efficiently
0: well i'll start with one of the things i said before which is a good sense of humor I think it really bodes you well to understand that you do your best in life at any given moment. Uh, You should be prepared to do your best, but you do your best. I'm not a person that looks back with regrets. I've always been somebody who has uh, done the best that I could. And I think growing up when I did in the profession where there was a lot more discrimination against osteopathic medicine, I learned very quickly that the quickest way to silence people was to be excellent. So I have always tried and, sh- and um, strove to be excellent at all times because that's what silenced people. My number one referral base when I was in private practice were MD neur- neurologists, which was fascinating because they could see how manipulative medicine helped some of their patients when they couldn't help their patients. Um, but I think that I go into these projects preparing myself, i.e. getting training in masters or in education or in different projects. I go in with a team approach, I go in with a sense of humor and I go in knowing that I'm gonna do the best I can at that moment and make the best decision that I can at that moment. I do think that going in with the team that I work with helps you make those decisions because I'm not somebody who wants a yes man or a yes woman. I want somebody to tell me what they think. If they disagree with me, I need to know that. They're not there to make me happy. They're there to make sure that we think of all the different things that we do. So going back to your question, I will remind you, and I know you already know this, that not only do we have the two campuses for the DO program, but we also have five bachelor's programs, five master's programs, a post program, and two doctoral programs. So the picture of management is a whole lot more than just running the med school, which in and of itself is very difficult. I think that the biggest challenge during this pandemic has been people's frustrations Uh, people's fears, uh, people's uh, desires to get back together again, and the emotionality that has come with that. And um, with meeting with the students in the Dean's hours once a month, I get to speak with them. I've tried to communicate with them in letters uh, at least once a month, but there's a lot of trepidation. Uh, And I understand that trepidation. I understand that everybody is worried where we're going, both health-wise and are we gonna get COVID-19 or we're not gonna get COVID-19. Um, I am somebody that, uh, keeps up with things pretty well. I, I, I'm not neurotic about things, but I'm very good about keeping up with my workflow. I think that being in master's programs for the majority of my life has kept me in that circle, you know, keeps you moving. You have to do your next assignment. You have to do your next assignment. You have to do your next assignment. Um, I'm very, very fortunate to have the people that I work with work with me because we have done this together. Um, I also was very fortunate to have President Hanbury ask me to chair the NSU COVID-19 committee very early on. And so I was able to see what the issues were way before other schools saw what the issues were. As you and I spoke a little bit earlier, we had a group that came back from Ireland that were positive before Ireland was even on the list. And those people lived in dormitories, and at one point we had 90 people who were quarantined. And I had to get all of the physicians together to make sure we followed up with them. At that time, the regulations in Broward County were more staunch and stricter than the CDCs. And so we, choose to follow, we chose to follow the Broward County regulations. Um, I think that you cannot let things slide. You have to stay on top of things. And being a lifelong student has kept me in that Wheel of staying on top of things. Um, I also have a good sense of people and what the issues are. Um, I, I, I think that the number one thing that I have learned in my career, and I will share this with you, is to sleep on things overnight. I have learned uh, being from an Italian family, which is sometimes very histrionic and uh, loud, that there's a tendency to sometimes react to things uh, which goes back to me going to Dr. Sandhouse's room and shutting the door and, and yelling. But I've learned that I need to sleep on things. And so uh, that's the biggest lesson I've learned. And when I get to a decision um, and I sleep on it overnight, there's something that happens internally to me that I know is the right decision. Um, I'll give you other examples. I've had in my career needs to fire people, Um But sometimes it's taken me five, six days until I've slept on it enough that I know it's the right thing to do and I know why I need to do it. Uh, I've learned to recognize that feel within myself of jobs that are correct and decisions that are correct. But I do sleep on things. Um, I do try to keep up on the pandemic for Dr. Hanbury and for Nova Southeastern. And uh, I try to think about all of you It's a very difficult thing to do to balance the students, especially you all, and even more so the third and fourth year students when the hospitals close and we can't send the students out on rotation. Uh, That's something that I have no power over. So I'm always very big on if you can't go through the front door, go through the back door. And if you can't go through the back door, go through the window. But figure out how to get to go where you're going. And so I never stop trying to figure out alternatives for things when things don't work well. I'm always uh, willing to listen. If I, if I haven't thought things through well, then somebody will tell me. Um, I think your class officers in both the first year and the second class year and the third year are all extraordinary. They represent you all very well. Um, and I think that I, I trust that everyone's doing the best they can at that moment. I think people have learned to trust that I try to do the best I can at any given moment. But I think you have to keep a list and I've got a list and a stack of things over here and you just got to keep working them every day and you just got to go down that list and check them off. The queen of lists is Dr. DiGitano. Uh She writes every single thing down on her list, including cross off my list from yesterday on the list. And so she and I are alike in that way I keep lists I go down my lists, and I make sure that I've got everything done on my list.
1: That's amazing. Yet, yeah, To me, just the fact that we're still moving forward in our medical education is a miracle right now. So thank you. For- it is,
0: it, it absolutely is. And uh, the fact that we have a safe campus is also that. And uh, so I, I, I give all of that credit to the team I work with. Amazing. So, uh,
2: in terms of um, just going back to the subject of leadership, um, were there any particular uh, failures or setbacks that you had experienced? Um, that you'd like to share with us and uh, what skills and lessons you took away from those experiences and how they helped you develop as a leader?
0: You know, Raja, um, I don't look at them as failures, just to start with. Um, but I do understand that there have been occasions that things didn't go the way I thought they were going to go. And so I will tell you the biggest one in my career, which was I was on the path of having served as just about every single dean in the Kansas City area that you could have served as. I was the assistant dean of preclinical. I was the associate dean of clinical. I was the vice dean of medical education. I was the acting dean. So I was on a pathway to become the dean in Kansas City. And what happened is they hired a new president who I worked with for a number of years. So in my mind, my life is going along and I'm probably gonna end up being the dean in Kansas City. And I became aware that this individual was not honest and she was stealing money from the university. So what happened at that point is that I had to make a decision as to whether or not I wanted to be affiliated with her or I needed to follow my own ethics. And I'm someone who tries to follow my ethics. Um, One of my successes has always been that I could leave this job tomorrow and get another job. I could always get another job this is not the only job in the world. So when that happened in Kansas City, I had to make a decision as to what to do. And I chose to leave the university. I chose not to become the Dean there. And I chose at that point to move to Maryland. And at that time I was working with a house call company on the board of trustees. And so I was going to go to Maryland in order to work with house calls in elite hotels. That's what my mind was saying prior to them recruiting me to come down here to uh, Florida. Um, I didn't look back on it. I didn't feel bad about it. You know, I just thought, well, my life is supposed to go in another direction. And subsequent to that, she was indicted for fraud and did indeed um, have quite a few charges against her. And subsequent to that, she killed herself over this entire process. So, you know, I've learned to do the best I can and sleep with myself at nighttime. If I don't have a clean conscience at nighttime, then I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And so from that lesson, I learned, you know, if you're supposed to be a dean, you're going to be a dean. And and obviously that happened not in Kansas City, but in Florida. But I always had a very clean conscience from that. So I, um, I always try to remember to sleep with myself at nighttime with a clean conscience, do what my morals tell me to do, and things will work out because that's far more important than having a job to me. That
1: Thank goes you. back to... Um... Kind of as well as your your teamwork uh and the, the things you look for in a teammate is being honesty and, and, and qualities like that so that that makes sense yep. it's consistent um do you do you still practice clinical medicine at all
0: i do i tr- i see patients i like to try to see patients about one half day per week uh sometimes it's like during the pandemic here it's been a little bit more challenging Um, One of the bad things from 9-11 is that subsequent to that time, I developed 9-11 lung, and so I have to be careful with my respiratory system during the pandemic, so I'm not doing it right at this point, but I really enjoy the patient care, and so I try to practice uh, at least one half day per week. Um, I am still the residency director of the sports medicine fellowship on campus, so either in manipulative medicine or in sports med. And then obviously on any of the missions I go on, I serve in whatever capacity they need me to serve in.
1: How did you get started in um, like mission medicine or just going on mission?
0: Traveling. It was was purely because I wanted to travel. And uh, when I was a kid, um, because my dad's parents lived in Mississippi, we would come to Mississippi every other year. And then in the off years, we would actually come to Florida for vacation over in the uh, Siesta Keys area. And uh, I never had gone out of the country at all. I'd never taken a trip out of the country and very, very few flights. I believe my very first flight was the one I took to go to Mississippi for college because my dad worked for the railroad and we took trains all over the country. So um, I made a pledge to myself that I was going to after I got out of school and I had the money go one place per year because I wanted to see the world and travel the world. And so it was really travel to begin with. Uh, that really got me interested in uh, the mission work. After that, after the first mission, you get the rewards of doing that first mission. And so after the first time, it was because of the mission itself, but I'd be lying to you to tell you that I don't enjoy the traveling as well when you do that.
1: Absolutely, so when you go, is it, what's the what's the percentage mixture, would you say of like work and fun?
0: Uh, it's all fun, uh, it's all work. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, I would say I usually take the Ecuador mission out and we go for the two weekends, the one before and the one after the week. We try to have uh, two days of any mission where we go and we do fun activities. Like there's a museum in the center of the world that we do. And we go into the uh, Atavalo, which is a small indigenous Indian village down there. We do tours of Quito. So I do think it's important for the students to see the culture. Now, I've done many of those things over and over because I like going to Ecuador. And Ecuador became a mission site, very interestingly, because I was on vacation in Ecuador. And I took my mom with me and we stayed in the home of this gentleman named Jorge Cruz, who was, his hotel was on the very top of the volcano in one of the very first um, homes of the first president of Ecuador. So, and before that it had been a convent. So it was a very interesting, fascinating place. And he was a um, veterinarian, but he decided he wanted to get into touristry business. And that's how I first met him. And since that time, he has been our ombudsman down in Ecuador to get all of the communities set up and to get all of those things set up. So uh, all of the workings of a mission set up. And when we go back now, we stay in his location for a couple of days of the mission, and then we go out either into the rainforest or into the Amazon, depending on where we're going that year. And I love the Amazon, it's, it's just, there's just something about the Amazon that really speaks to me. Um, it's a very um, uh, beautiful place. And uh, some, some of the places you go are male, some of the places you go are female and, and how they feel. Behind me right now is outer Mongolia, where I went a few years ago. Those feel like male mountains to me, but the Amazon has always felt like a very female place to me, and I just enjoy it. I I, I feel at home in the Amazon, so I, I really enjoy going there.
1: That's awesome. Maybe maybe one day Raj and I will be lucky enough to make our. I way. hope
0: so. They're really fun missions. <laughs> um. So,
1: as as a as a woman coming up in a dominant a male dominant industry or um I guess industry is are, were there any specific challenges that you faced?
0: Oh, constantly. And that goes back to my sense of humor. Um, Mm -hmm. I think when you go into medicine, and when I was in medicine, very few women were in medicine. We had 10 women in our class of 160. And it was very clear that some people did not want us there. Uh, I remember professors drawing what would be considered uh, fireable things on the board, drawing penises and ejaculations and all kinds of things to try to get us upset. Uh, one of the women transferred out because there was a lot of that. I remember when I first started taking classes, um, they it was it was not obstetrics and pediatrics, it was women and children. That class used to be taught together in a very interesting perspective when you think about women and children being linked together. Um, uh, very often you'd hear people calling you chicks or babe or those kind of things, and you have to kind of decide how you're going to deal with those things. So. Uh, I decided that I was going to deal with it by giving it back to them and by being humorous and making a joke out of it. Because going to the Dean at that time would not have made much difference. It was a very male dominated profession at that time. And I was not gonna be the person who was gonna be a complainer at that time. So I decided humor was my best way to address those kind of things. And I'll give you an example, which is an interesting example. Uh, we were required to wear our white coats at that time during class time and to dress professionally. So we had not grown to where you could wear scrubs as you all can. And I remember one day having gone to the restroom and coming back and my white coat was on the back of my chair and reaching into my white coat. And in my white coat was the severed penis from a cadaver that someone had stuck in the pocket of my white coat. So it's not every day you get a penis in your hand in the pocket of your white coat. And what are you gonna do with this? You know, uh, How do you deal with this? So I remember that um, the only thing I could think of at that time was to turn around and ask the four guys behind me, did one of you lose this? And it became a joke, you know, and everybody laughed. And they saw that I could take it. I saw that they could take it. And you know, you gain their trust in that way when you're not telling on somebody. And I used that throughout my career to try to make people understand that they're people. But I'm not going anywhere. So you can do what you want to me, but I'm not going anywhere. Um, there were times I will give you another example that I did speak out. Um, I remember being in my internship when the surgeon who I was working with discovered that the female patient that he had just delivered had gonorrhea and he discovered that her husband had gonorrhea. And he decided to tell the husband and treat the wife without telling her that she had gonorrhea. That was an occasion that I felt like I needed to say something. It did not put me in a good position with him, but at that time, that was something I thought was egregious enough that somebody needed to know this. So there were times that I joked about things and there were times that I had to think about what are the right things to do in this particular situation. Uh, and uh, you know, those things are different at any given moment. And I go back to, again, what I said, you have to try to do your best and think things through and sleep on it and do the very best thing you know how to do at that moment and then go on because that's all you really can do.
2: Thank you. Um, any questions, Yeah, so just to add on to, so thank you for sharing those um, experiences with us. So how do you uh, have so much, how do you, like, what's the source of your confidence to keep moving forward through challenges, and how do you tap into that intuition that you have that's helped you uh, time and time again? Um, I feel like a lot of the, like, people in our class and many other medical students, sometimes we don't trust ourselves, and we get very, very anxious, and and we uh, don't, look within us, but we kind of react to immediately to what other people are doing and then think that we have to do what they're doing. And we don't always have that internal resolve to, to know what we are capable of doing and, and having faith in what we are capable of doing and moving forward. So kind of how do you tap into your intuition and what's the source of your confidence to, to be you and to move forward?
0: Well, I think for me, it's a very spiritual thing, Raj, because as I said earlier, I've always felt like I was supposed to do this. So I do feel it as a calling, and I do feel it is what God put me here to do. So I feel very comfortable in doing that. Uh, It isn't Elaine doing this. It's Elaine in service to God doing this. And so that gives me a much greater confidence to do what I need to do. But I'm also somebody who, contrary to your generation, did not have the bells and whistles of tablets and cell phones and those types of things. So you have never seen me, for instance, wear a watch. I don't wear a watch, because I try to train those internal things in me that a lot of you have lost. And so I can tell you what time it is within 15 minutes, anytime you ask me, because I still try to train those kind of things to try to be aware of the things around me. I would also tell you that um, my hobby is the study of shamanism, which is the study of the ancient medicine men and women tradition. And so I have studied with shamans all over the world, uh, in the jungles of the Amazon, in uh, Thailand, in the American Southwest, and on and on. And as you study with medicine people around the world, it becomes very obvious that they don't do things the way that we do things. Um, But there is a belief system of their patients that believe that they're going to get better dealing with this individual who is their practitioner. And so I have learned from those people that there are many, many different ways to do things, that faith of the patient is very important. I believe there was a study done in Chicago a number of years back that showed that uh, 50% of all medications that they utilized had placebo effects. And we know that the placebo effect is not really just the placebo effect, it also is a change in the neurotransmitters of the brain. So faith in somebody and the healing process does help the healing process it obviously may not bring your blood pressure down diastolically to where it needs to be, but without a doubt, it will affect your systolic blood pressure. And so I keep a very open mind of the way the world is because I've been very privileged to see that there are many, many, many ways of doing things in the world. And it's just not one way of doing things. So I try to pay attention to that internal part of me that says, you know, maybe there's another way of doing something and listening to other people when they give me their input on how to do those things. But I think more than anything, it is the fact that uh, I feel that this is God given my calling and I should stand up and do my best job because uh, people other than you all are going to be judging me on this.
1: A little bit about what you said there about um, kind of learning from others and stuff is one of my favorite parts of being in medical school because it's the first time in my life where I've been surrounded you know, 100% of the time by amazing people. That are, I mean, everyone's amazing, but people that are just performing and have knowledge and you can learn from every single person. It's It's been a lot of fun so far.
0: Yeah, you guys have a really good class and the class before you and after you. The diversity is wonderful. The places from the world and the country you're from are very wonderful. And I think overall people appreciate one another. Uh, some people don't appreciate anybody, but I think overall 95% of you have the same experience you have, Dan. Mm -hmm. if not more.
1: Yep. It's, we're, we love our class. It's been, it's been a lot of fun the last year and a half. Um, so we just have a couple more questions and then we won't take any more of your time, but, um, so do you, is there anything that you wish you knew as maybe a student, maybe someone in the twenties or thirties that, that you wish you knew that, you know, now,
0: you know, uh, Dan, I just was, um, on an award ceremony today because i was very honored today to be one of the march of dimes women of distinction for south florida and one of the questions that they asked in a videotape was what would you have told your 20 year old self if you were able to talk to your 20 year old self and my response to that was sometime in your life this old woman is going to come talk to you about what you needed to know when you were 20 to run the other direction and don't listen to a word she says. So no, there is nothing that I wish I would have known differently. Uh, I try to trust myself at all times in that moment and I don't regret things.
1: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And because um, kind of being in the moment helps you actually realize what you need to learn sometimes. So that makes a lot of sense. That's a good answer, thank you.
2: Adding adding on to that, so um, what would you, uh, what do you think students uh, in this day and age um, could work on earlier on that that would uh, tremendously help them uh, in the future? Um, and that may that may not be something that we learn in the class that we learn in the classroom, but just intangible skills. Um, is there is there anything of that sort that you think that we could pay attention to now and uh, kind of work on as we go?
0: Well, I think if you're asking me about college students and high school students. Sports are really important. I think the working in a team is an important thing to learn. And so the sport of soccer, I played field hockey. I was a field hockey goalie for many, many years. Uh, Being a goalie has probably been one of the most impressive things within my life. And it helped frame my perspective of being a dean. Because when you're standing in that goal, you're the last one standing. And if everybody else on that team misses and you miss, the team goes down. So being a goalie really framed how I look at being a dean, uh, trying to keep all the balls from getting past me in the goal. Um, but I do think that uh, teamwork is really, really important as you shape yourself. I, I think one of the things that I'm most proud of in my career has been the development of the bachelor's programs in the last five years at KPCom. Uh, When I took over as dean, there were no bachelor's programs, and we currently have five, and we're about to have a sixth and a seventh one come in in the next couple of years. All of those bachelors are track programs into the osteopathic medicine program. So instead of having just individuals who came from the sciences, we now have individuals coming from public health, from nutrition, from health and wellness coaching, from biomedical informatics, The next one that we're going forward with is emergency medicine and firefighting. And then the one after that is animal therapy that we're working on. So the reason I tell you this is that that has changed the flavor of the class and who goes into medicine. And so one of the things I'm proudest of is the fact that it's not just gonna be individuals that have that focus of biology or that focus of chemistry, but it is individuals that come from more diversity in their backgrounds because we are a very diverse population. And I think that that diversity is very helpful. When I went through, we did not have any education in nutrition. We now have people entering into the med school whose background bachelor's is nutrition. And that's gonna make a huge difference to patients when they're out there. So I think that's one of the things that I'm proudest of in regards to what I'm doing. So I would tell you that it's teamwork and it's also um, being rounded. Don't just get so focused that you just see the sciences. Because if you just see the sciences, you're not gonna be able to, good, to be a good osteopath because that includes, as an osteopathic physician, not only the body, but the mind and the spirit. And you have to have ways that you're able to connect with people. And so I think around this in your education is very important. Um, I will be able to answer your question better Um, I'm currently in an educational specialist program. I just uh, was admitted a couple days ago, and it is allowing me to design my own curriculum. And so I'm taking classes now like um, education and the Internet, education and technology, educational modalities. I think I've had to keep myself up to date and being in these master's programs have helped me to look at new things and everything that I have done in the school has actually been a project for one of these master's programs that I've been in. And I've used those masters to kind of keep me abreast of things. Um, So I I probably will know a lot more to how to answer your question after a few more semesters. uh, But I am spending time looking at what's out there technologically, what's on the Internet now. Um, With this COVID-19 issue and the third and fourth students being out, I learned a tremendous amount about online education, the aquifer case studies. How do we give them clinical education when they're not in the clinics? So there's a lot to learn out there and I'm a lifelong learner and enjoy that learning process.
2: Thank you so much for that.
1: Thank you. Um, This is my last question. Raj, if you have any questions after this, Feel free, but um, where do you expect to see medicine in general or healthcare and also osteopathic medicine in the future, maybe 20 years down the road?
0: I think there will be technologies available that we don't even conceive of right now. Um, you have to remember when I went through medical school, the MRI machine was not in date. And uh, I remember starting college with a slide rule. And then I remember my parents spending almost $80 to get me a small calculator because they were just new. So there's a lot of things uh, that are now being uh, seen that were not there before. When I did my undergraduate in criminal justice, we used to think that criminals were all secondary and psychology. We used to think that criminals and, and psychiatric issues were all due to your mother and your father. We now are in an era where we're looking at the neurotransmitters in the brain. And uh, one of the things that has been a new thing in medicine has been looking at the functional MRIs and the PET scans of the brain. So I think we're going to see a whole world open up to be able to see people thinking and to see people working. And those have interesting challenges and interesting um, discussions. Um, For instance, uh, they now can show areas of the brain that seem to be the same in serial killers. Serial killers all have this one area on a PET scan that shows up differently than other individuals. Is that the chicken or is that the egg? I don't know, you know, what do we do? Do we, do we look at all kids in 20 years from now and do PET scans of the brain? And then if we find that they have this little area of the brain, what do we do with them then? Do we put them all in quarantine or segregation so they don't have to grow up to be killers? Um, that is also seen in individuals that are abusers. There's an area of the brain. Uh, it's seen in a lot of different things that we're now starting to understand about the brain. So I think the way things are going now that the brain is gonna be a new frontier that's gonna open, o- open up to us within the next 20 years. And then there's gonna be technologies that you and I have not even thought about. Um, when I went through, we did open surgeries on everything. Look at how many things are now done arthroscopically or laparoscopically. It's not the same kind of surgery as it was then either. So there's gonna be things that none of us have even conceived of that are gonna be part of medicine.
1: I have a follow-up question that I feel like I should up. So I feel like I can't leave this interview without at least having you talk about this because I know you're passionate about it. Um, what made you choose osteopathic medicine over allopathic medicine?
0: Well, this was very simple for me. Um, I was actually at college, of, I went to college in Mississippi, as I told you. And at that time, the only people who could go to Mississippi Medical School were Mississippi residents. And so I had finished, I had done my provisional interviews. They said, we like you at the University of Mississippi's med school, but you're not a Mississippi resident. So I finished college within three years. I just had a couple courses to do and I did a year of research before I thought I was gonna go into uh, medical school. During that year, I established my residency as a Mississippi resident in order to be a Mississippi resident the following year when I entered into med school. At that time, I knew nothing about osteopathic medicine. And during the time that I was working in my research, I became familiar with a gentleman there on the campus in Mississippi who had this osteopathic medicine. He had an in with the Kansas City School. And so I began to learn about osteopathic medicine, and I think it was just a natural fit for me because of being such an athletic kinesthetic person. The kinesthetics of it were very, very common sense to me. The idea that I could learn a different modality of diagnosis than what everybody else had made perfect sense to me, and I just fell in love with the concept of it. So I decided not to pursue the allopathic education and I decided to pursue the osteopathic education. And it has been something I have never regretted. It has been something that has always spoke to me as an individual and spoke to the talents that I have.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And actually that perfectly led into the question that I wanted to ask you. Um, so allopathic physicians and osteopathic physicians both provide tremendous value and uh, uh, both amazing groups of individuals. Um, you're someone who's very, very forward-thinking, who's who loves teamwork, who loves to learn new ways to work together. And my question to you is: uh, In your opinion, what is the best way uh, moving forward to strengthen that partnership and bring the best out of one another and learn to work together so we can maximize healthcare for many, for all patients? Uh, as as you know, we have we've had the merger for the residency programs and many steps that have been taken forward, uh, which has helped this partnership, but what more do you think that we can do to help uh, make it even stronger, Excuse me, make it even stronger?
0: I think it's education. I think it, it, that, that uh, remember in the 50s, uh, osteopathic medicine uh, through the Korean War got more licensure and latitude, but for many years it was seen as a cult by the AMA, and it was actually in their Doctrines that they were not to associate with osteopaths. I think once you learn who an osteopath is and once you see an osteopath work, uh, you learn about the profession. And so, getting into residencies with allopaths, our students do extraordinarily well. Um, They have the depth and the breadth that I was speaking of earlier in regards to understanding the patient's family and the ancillary things that. Healthcare is needs in order to make a patient optimally well. Uh, so I think just doing the best you can. And when you get there, you have to do better than the next guy. You have to be the best guy on the block. You have to strive for excellence. That is the thing that will win allopaths over more than anything else, is striving for excellence, having good patient outcomes, and being who you are. I, I'm never at all ashamed of my profession, and uh, but I do strive for excellence at all times because nothing shuts somebody up quicker than excellence.
1: That's true. Um, I'm not sure if we'll have an opportunity to interview anyone else that has a board certification in acupuncture. Um, how did you decide to go down that route, and what exactly? I guess. Um, I guess briefly, what I know what acupuncture is, but like, what what does it mean to you?
0: Well, it was was actually when I was here in South Florida that I went through the Helms program that came out of California to become certified in acupuncture. It was an in-residence program for a period of time, and then it was a home program for a period of time. And I was interested in it because of my interest in what is now being known as integrative medicine that has come from many years of working with shamans around the world. Uh, Many shamans work with chakras and work with energy. And what acupuncture does is it works with the flow of energy in the body. So I thought that that would be a really interesting skill to have. Um, As I went through the program, it's very interesting because I didn't like it very much. And I didn't like it very much because I enjoyed the work I did with my hands more than I enjoyed the work I did with the needles. But I was able to take from it those things that I wasn't able to do with my hands. And so it gives me the opportunity to get into locations where my hands can't get into, such as the interosseous septum. I may not be able to put my fingers on the interosseous septum in the leg, but I can put an acupuncture needle there and I can feel how the tension is and I can resolve that tension. Uh, I did a lot of electrical acupuncture, which is very interesting, Uh, electrical acupuncture with osseous structures. And so for instance, if you think about it, there is a charge relative to arthritis. Uh, We know that calcium has a charge to it. You can actually put needles into the bone, connect those needles to electrodes and deliver an electrical stimulus that alters that charge going through the bone. And so I found that it was extraordinarily helpful in conditions such as arthritis. When I was able to put the needles in the bone connect them to an electrical device and deliver a different current to those individuals. So what I have taken from it now, years later in my career, is really getting to those places that my hands can't get to. And it's been a great adjunct, but it wasn't what I thought it was gonna be. It wasn't something that I fell in love with and couldn't wait to do it again. It wasn't that at all. It became an ancillary tool to use in my manipulative practice.
1: I think that's a perfect answer because it's it's honest but it also you know you really took the benefit from it which extension of your hands is always helpful so thank you um i don't have any more questions do you rush uh
2: i don't have any questions either thank you so much for joining us and uh sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us we really really appreciate it well
0: yeah. thank you both it's been a very enjoyable hour to speak with both of you hopefully gave you a little insight into me my personality and how I try to run the school, but I do appreciate you taking the time and affording me the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. The Medical Muse is produced by Timothy Crow. Your hosts are Daniel Epstein and Raj Kavadi. Music on the show by Foxy Music. For more information, check out foxymusic.com. Join us next time where we discuss medical marijuana with Dr. Lynn Lasseter. Lastly, we'd love to connect with you. Follow our Instagram, the underscore medical underscore muse or on Twitter at medical pod. See you next time.